0: Welcome, my friends, to another episode of Is That Really Legal? with Eric Rubin. Today, my guest is Kathy Benjamin. She's an author and an editor, and she has a new book out on Quirk Books called It's Your Funeral, Plan the Celebration of a Lifetime Before It's Too Late. This is a nonfiction book about planning your own funeral. I have to tell you, it is smart It is fun, it is funny, and it's very important. I really love this book, and I think it's just necessary. Uh, You know, this is a a subject that people don't like dealing with, but I got to tell you, as someone who dealt with it over the pandemic um, more than once with relatives, this is a crucial book. Also, because I've handled will and trust and estate matters, People don't like to talk about this stuff, but it's incredibly important. And the fact that Kathy Benjamin and Quirk Books have put together something in an entertaining and easy to deal with way that's also incredibly informative and helpful is just the greatest. So um, Kathy Benjamin is a fascinating person. She's been a lot of places. She's done a lot of really cool things. And she is just a fun interview. Um, like every other creative I've met, she has not had a straight line. She's lived in a bunch of different places and she's got really cool things uh, that we talk about, including the fact that she's represented uh, by an agent who used to be my intern. We'll talk about all those things and more. So, why don't you just keep it here and you can hear Kathy Benjamin. Kathy Benjamin, welcome to Is That Really Legal with Eric Rubin? So good to actually meet you.
1: Hi, thank you for having me. Yeah, this is really exciting.
0: Um, just to let you know, I may or may not say this in the intro, I, I don't think I've ever met you in person, but you and I have known each other on Twitter for probably a very long time. And um, when I was an agent, I made the mistake of not taking you on as a client. I will tell people. This happens all the time, and um, people shouldn't take this personally. There are lots of people that I did not agent who may have gone on to great careers. I literally don't know of any, but I'm sure they're out there, because an agent and a writer are really a very specific type of relationship, and it's not always right. Um, And um, it wasn't for this book that we're going to talk about. Um, I did a little research because I remembered you from all those years ago. Saw a different book. Doesn't matter. What's interesting is that your agent is actually my former intern and junior agent. So it's in the lineage and it was destined to happen in some ways. So that's exciting. Do you have any thoughts on that?
1: Yeah, I mean, you I, I thought you wouldn't know, but I mean, you were fundamental in my in my publishing journey I think if you weren't the first, you were definitely one of the first two or three agents that I ever followed on Twitter. Um, you were agenting at the time, obviously. And I was like obsessed with your tweets, the, um, the, the flush pile 10 that you did. That, that was the first time I'd ever seen that. This is me learning about you know querying and learning about all these things for the first time. And yeah, I read those religiously. When I found them, I went back and read all the ones you'd done before. And then I, you did like little contests from time to time. And you'd like ask a question, people would have to go find the answer. It was, one was about your tattoo, your Jedi tattoo. <laughs> and, uh, and so I won two of those contests. And one of them was to read a query letter. And it was for a different, it was a nonfiction book and still the the feedback that you gave me on that is still I still use it now. It's actually out on submission with with Shannon right now. Um, and yeah, that's the feedback you gave is pretty much the query. Letter.
0: Oh, that's fantastic. I was not mentioning any of that to be self-serving, but how lucky for me. And this is not about me, but of course. I'm selfish. But anyway, um, so I just wanted to get it out there that you and I, although we never met, we sort of had a relationship already for a long time. Um, so um, I'm going to uh, we will ultimately talk about your book, which is called It's Your Funeral, uh, Plan the Celebration of a Lifetime Before It's Too Late. I'm sorry, (laughs) behind me in the background is Brooklyn. Lots of sirens, there's a fire and mayhem obviously somewhere going on, so I apologize. But um, this is really a great book, Uh, Quirk Books, which is a not, so hard to characterize them because I think of them as a very large and, and great publishing house, although they're technically an independent publisher located in Philly, but they do great stuff. I just wanna say before we dive too deep, I love the cover. Did you have any input on this? Uh, The
1: only input I had, I am not artistic, sadly. It's one of the great sadnesses of my life. But um, the only input I had was they sent me a version and said it's basically this. What do you think? And I said the colors are a bit too eastery. Can we make it less eastery? And they made it less eastery. And that was all the uh, the thoughts I had.
0: (laughs) So people should know to look for this book, which is called "It's Your Funeral." um, There's a picture of a very happy skeleton with a party hat and a champagne glass uh, with an open casket, and it is a fine line to not be macabre and dark, but also not be disrespectful. And I think this does, you know, it skates right in between and is charming. I'm going to say it's a charming cover. And it really screams, pick up this book, which I, I, you know, anybody in publishing will tell you that's the goal. The cover is hopefully the thing that says, pick up the book, whether it's a romance or a mystery or nonfiction like this. So I want to back up way back. You're talking to me. You're in Austin, Texas. You're in sort of the oasis of a, uh, I don't want to get too political, but I am political these days on the show. And there's a lot of stuff happening in Texas that, you know, bleeding heart liberals like myself here in Brooklyn, the capital of liberal America, uh, we're a little freaked out about. Um, and I don't know your politics, and if you don't want to get into it, it's fine, but my guess is you live in Austin, you're an author, you're probably, you have some thoughts.
1: Yes, and as they say, I'm not from around here. Um, yeah, I I grew up in New Jersey, and then I went to high school and college in California, and then I did my master's degree in England, and then I moved to Austin, Texas. So yeah, I am not a Texan. I <laughs> moved oh. here when I was 25 26 something like that and uh yeah but Austin anyway you know all, all the hype is true Austin is incredible it's so vibrant oh, just live music live theater just all the, and then you know you go out to the rest of Texas and it's beautiful and so many of the people are really really wonderful it's just yeah it's a little it's a little different than, than what I'm used to. I'm very much the bleeding heart liberal socialist,
0: yeah. <laughs> well, what's funny is Texas, at the very least, we can all agree, it's huge. The first time I went to Texas, I was driving with another author, Suzanne Brockman, a New York Times bestselling romance author who I used to work with. Um, we were driving across the country doing book tours in person when there were these things called bookstores, boys and girls. Um, You may want to check that out. Uh, Go to Google, look in the history books. But in any event, I remember coming from Louisiana, entering Texas in that area. And it said something like, El Paso, 750 miles. Or I may be wrong on the mileage, but it was awe-inspiring, just the, the giant nature of Texas. It's huge. And it's as diverse a state as New York is, frankly, because like you said, you have Austin, you have, you know, oil areas, you have lots of universities of all stripes, lots of different people of all stripes, financial centers, legal centers, farming, you know, so I'm not going to, everybody can Google Texas if they want. What I was talking more about are the current uh, women's health care rights issues that I urge people to just take a look at. That's not Kathy Benjamin's uh, forte, nor is it her responsibility to educate people. We're here talking about her book, It's Your Funeral. I want to though say, so you grew up in New Jersey. Where in Jersey did you grow up?
1: A place you will not have heard of called Cedar Grove. It's near, I suppose, it's near Montclair.
0: Sure, I actually do know it, but that's because I have friends in okay. Montclair.
1: There you go. Yeah, but it's very, very close to Montclair. It's a little tiny, or at least it was when I was a little tiny commuter to New York town. Uh, so, yeah, very close to New York City. You know, that was school trips. We went to see Cats on Broadway and all that. Um, yeah, so the the kind of northern suburban New York belt. Yeah. Do but, you, yeah the, oh sorry i was just gonna no. say yeah we can talk about we can talk about the texas bills if you want that's fine I, I well I, i'd rather
0: have people hear about your book and about you you know i often say on this podcast i have authors and other creative people on to talk about how their journey is not a straight line and yes you you grew up in a new york city suburb like i did mine was in long island so you probably went to all the museums as a kid or a lot of the big museums and you went to see Broadway shows and that was a big part of informing my creative life. Uh, was that true for you as well?
1: Yeah, it, it really was. It was a shock to to move away and kind of realize that actually New York is massive when that's like the city that you grow up know, knowing when someone says, oh, we're going to the city and it's New York city, usually Manhattan, you know, that's what you think of as cities. And then you move to the Bay area and you go to San Francisco. And even though San Francisco is incredible in its own way, it's like, wait, this this is a city? This is tiny and it doesn't have as many museums and this is their theater district and all, you know, so you kind of, your view of the world is warped when, when New York is that center of your universe.
0: It's so interesting that you talk about uh, San Francisco because that's where my wife is from. And God knows I, I go there a lot. Uh, my first honeymoon, uh, with another human being uh, was there in the 80s. And I've seen San Francisco change dramatically over the 40 or so years that I've known it. Um, did you, you went to college in San Francisco. Where did you go?
1: I actually, I I grew up in the East, I did high school in the East Bay. And then I went to college um, in the Central Coast, a place called Cal Poly. Uh, Got Los it. San which is Wait, like... Uh,
0: is uh, that, that's not poly, Cal Poly is... It's not known by any other names, is it?
1: California Polytechnic State University, San Luis Obispo.
0: <laughs> wow. Um. I want to back up a second. Where in the East Bay did you grow up? Pleasanton. Okay. So ridiculously, I know that area very well because my wife grew up in Walnut Creek. Oh, yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So they're all on the BART. <laughs> yeah, exactly. And if you're from that area, you know what I mean? If you're not, I'm sorry. But it. think of it this way. There's tremendous amount of commuter towns that... You take this highfalutin train called BART, Bay Area Rapid Transit, and ultimately go into San Francisco. It's a giant commuter experience. Um, and you go, you know, that that area is very beautiful. Um, it's not far from Berkeley. There's lots of amazing mountain ranges, Diablo. Is it Diablo? Um, and um, something about a bear or a lion, I can't remember now my wife will yell at me when she hears this. Anyway, it's just a beautiful area to grow up in, I would think. Did you find that to be true? I mean, well, to go to high school and then was that yeah
1: like- when, when we moved there, so uh, I started high school in 97 and we moved there that summer. Um, so it was like Bart Pleasanton was the last stop on Bart at that point. And I know they've moved out and done lots more, but so it was nice because we were far enough away, but you could get to the city. It's wine country. So we literally like it was a it was a very upper class white area. It still is very upper class white. Oh, I yeah. lived on a golf course slash vineyard. So it's that kind of. That's pretty white. Time, yeah. It, oh, it unbelievable! <laughs> but at the time, it was kind of out there. You had to kind of drive into Pleasanton. It was kind of in the middle of nowhere. Um, yeah, it was really. I was very privileged, and it was very, 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 very beautiful.
0: Yeah. Now, at that time, were you doing any writing?
1: Um, the writing thing is weird, because I look back, and it's like all the signs were there. Like, I would write something, and it would get read by the teacher in front of the class. And I would just be mortified, because I had written it the class before that class, you know, back when things didn't have to be typed, so you could get away with being in economics going, oh, crap, I'm going to write for English <laughs> longhand. And then, you know, that would get read as an example of a good thing. And then I'd be told I was a good writer, but it never no one really ever said, Oh, do you know, you could do this for a living. So as a, as a, as I was growing up, it it was never a thought, you know, I always said, Oh, I want to write a novel, but everyone wants to write a novel. It wasn't a matter of, I'm going to write a novel and that's going to be my career. It's just, I have these ideas inside of me. Um, yeah. So I was really late coming to the realization that one could, could survive by writing.
0: Mm. And, um, did you ever do any fan fiction or were you a voracious reader or any of those things? Voracious reader.
1: Yeah. I, um, yeah, I, I was, I was one of the snobby people who didn't really like fan fiction. X-Files fan fiction was really big back then, <laughs> <laughs> but, uh, yeah, no, I, and I apologize for that, but, Yeah. No, voracious reader. Just ask, I mean that, you know, before phones, you know, in your hand all the time. So what was I doing? I had a book. Always, always, always reading. A lot of the classics, a lot of nonfiction. I'm a, I'm very much a nonfiction reading person and was even in high school.
0: What were the, some of the books that you still remember had a great impact on you at that time?
1: Probably uh, the two biggest were, uh, I think when I was 15, I went to one of those bookstores you were talking about and got uh, Divorced, Beheaded, Survived, a Feminist Reinterpretation of the Wives of Henry VIII. Um, and it, yeah, that was. That's light that
0: reading. Yeah.
1: <laughs> you know, it, weirdly, it kind of is. It, yeah. It's more towards the popular, you know, it's not that long and it's more towards the popular history. But it uh, absolutely changed my life when it, for, it was my first introduction to Henry VIII and his wives that would be what I went on, you know, I, I have a master's in the Tudor period, you know, so it, it was my obsession with that started, and it it was kind of my first realization that history could be, you know, it could involve issues of today. You could look at it through a feminist lens. You could look at it in a, rev- I didn't know the word revisionist, but in a revisionist way, and say, okay, are we being fair to, to these more marginalized people in history? Um, so yeah, that that was a very formative book for me that probably launched me straight into history for the rest of my life. And then also um, uh, To Marry an English Lord, which is about, uh, again, nonfiction, but it's about in the uh, mid to late 1800s, uh, the heiresses of the big robber barons in America had, you know, they had all this money and the, the aristocracy of England was broke. So they basically would arrange marriages, essentially, between rich women and broke aristocratic men and trade money for titles.
0: This is exactly what happened in Downton Abbey. For all you Downton (laughs) Abbey fans, the reason he married an American woman was this is based on actual facts, right?
1: Yeah, I believe it's. She, I think she's based on Mary Curzon. I think. As I've actually only seen like two episodes of Downey, but I know uh, that the the woman is, uh, you know, supposed to be American. Uh, I think the actress is British, but yeah, it. Um, yeah, no, she, is Mar- she is oh, American.
0: She's. Oh, is she? Oh, Okay, yeah.
1: yeah. I think it's Mary Curzon that it's supposed to be based on, and yeah, she's in she's in this book that I was talking about, and it's it's so many pictures. Like you could essentially almost call it like a graphic novel, like a graphic nonfiction. It's got so many images of the women and what they wore, and the balls they went to, and these mansions they lived in, and it just really immerses you. And I was like, I love England, (laughs) I love England so much. And that was another one where you know I I went there to do uh, my masters. I married (laughs) when I was over there, so my husband is English, and yeah, so so those two are kind of like history, England, boom.
0: What's very interesting, the last person on my podcast, probably before you, because I think this is going to post very soon, uh, is a British friend of mine, uh, Lawrence Goldburn, who is a BAFTA-nominated screenwriter. And we talk about England and how weird, England is a weird place in that it's one country and it's four countries. And I won't do that to you right now. We did that with him and people are going to be tired of listening to it. But England is a great place to visit for Americans. It's kind of like for Americans who are want to travel and visit someplace that's not Canada, um, but they want to they want to feel like it's European but still familiar, England's so great because they speak our language there for the most part. Um, as I discussed <laughs> with Lawrence, not really, and I don't mean simple things like lift and elevator. There's a lot of other stuff. There's just there's things that just don't translate at all and then there's food things and cultural things but that's what's exciting about it did you how have you been to england a lot you must have because you married over
1: yeah i mean i went um i went when i was what, 14 i went again two summers in college to do just named off no i went to cambridge's summer school but which you don't have to be smart cambridge smart to get in but <laughs> you can do their, their summer schools and i was like yeah i mean this, this tells you the kind of person i am oh it's summer break from college why don't I go to England and do more school which I'm not even going to get credit for so I did that twice Cambridge is my favorite place in the world speaking of it's your funeral I want my ashes spread on the cam which is the river it's on absolutely beautiful place and then yeah I wanted to go to college there and doesn't it uh, basically
0: look like Harry Potter's uh school Cambridge
1: I think it's more. That's more Oxford. Oh, it's, okay. It's it's kind of weird. Um, Oxford is Oxford is very much a university that happens to be in a city. Cambridge is more a city that happens to be a university. So Cambridge is very spread out, and there'll be like a, a college. That's what they're called. The different basically schools. There'll be a college here, but then there'll be more city, and then there'll be a college. Whereas Oxford is more centralized. So you can kind of get the spires and.
0: Ah, uh, you know that there's some American schools like that. For instance, you know if you go to New York University or Boston University, there's lots of school buildings, but they are, it's definitely a city and you don't really feel necessarily like you're in a college. Um, And then there's, well, if you go to Harvard University in Boston, it it does spread out more than people think, but you have the main area is all in one spot in Harvard Square, that does feel like a school, Uh, but I digress. Um, (laughs) So Cal Poly, Am I confusing that with a polytech that's known famously for like some of the smartest, you know, on the MIT level, or is that the place I'm thinking? That's Caltech. Yeah,
1: that's that's Caltech. Caltech. Yeah. Okay, sorry. I think that's is that where they in the Big Bang Theory? I think that's where they teach is Caltech, something like that. I've never seen Big Bang. Oh God, I don't,
0: (laughs) I don't know. Although. I've been told that I'm not supposed to like that show because it's too mainstream or whatever, but I happen to really like that show, so <laughs> screw them. And also I had a client who uh, we had several comic book projects or graphic novel projects and their their graphic novels, we managed to get onto the show in the bookshop. But again, I digress. Um, so what was why... After what you're telling me, which is that you were writing and you're reading all this nonfiction about very British things, why Cal Poly?
1: It's two funny things that tells you how late I came to writing. Um, One reason I went to Cal Poly is because I wanted to go to England for my undergraduate degree and then junior year in AP English, which I got a five on the AP English exam. uh, (laughs) So people know that's the highest
0: (laughs) score you can get
1: very important that you get the context of that Uh, i got a d on a midterm report card in ap english because i thought we were being given busy work on the grapes of wrath and i (laughs) decided not to do it so when i got a d my parents again midterm it was up by the end but uh my parents said we're not sending you to another country to to fail your degree um and i was so you know fair enough so that's why i didn't go to england for my undergraduate the other reason I went to Cal Poly is because I did not go to major in history or English or anything like that. I went to major in statistics and it's the best school for statistics in the country. And I did one year of statistics, failed a couple calculus and uh, computer programming classes. And then I went, this was a mistake. And then I changed to history, but I wanted to stay at Cal Poly because it's beautiful. It's near, like right near the coast and it's it's an absolutely stunning area so well, i was already in love with it
0: where i know you said central is it near well what's it near
1: it's about a hundred miles north of santa barbara so it's um It's the problem is it's not near anything you know when it's near weirdly neverland ranch okay that's
0: <laughs> terrifying that you know that and for no. people who don't know that's michael jackson's old uh I, I don't know if you'd call it home, amusement park, both, neither.
1: Compound, uh, yeah. Uh, it, um, yeah, he, no, it, the reason I know this is because uh, Santa Maria is, is the closest, quote-unquote, bigger city, which no one's ever heard of because it's not very big, but that's where he was tried in the early 2000s, um, so it was quite near to us, about 20 minutes, half an hour away. And so when when we were following this trial, it was local. It was literally down the road, down the highway from us, which is why I know that that's
0: there. Gotcha. Um,
1: but yeah, it's, it really is in the middle of now. Oh, other thing, it's near Paso Robles, which is where uh, outside Paso Robles is where James Dean died. So oh, this is yeah, got <laughs> this it. is the and- kind of
0: area. for people who don't know who James Dean is again, go to Google, but he was a movie star when that meant something. Yeah. That's the old guy complaining. Um, he was ridiculously handsome, gifted. I think he only did three movies. Mm -hmm. Um, he did Broadway and he died sadly in a Porsche spider, um, they overcame the stigma though, and they're still selling cars as I understand it. And by the way, if you are a Porsche dealer and you want me to do ads for you in exchange for leasing me a Porsche, um, you can go to isthatreallylegal.com and leave me a <laughs> message. I'd love to drive a Porsche um, and you know, have it for a couple of years, that's fine. I've only driven one Porsche and that's not for now. Uh, in any event, um, at some point you graduate college and what do you end up doing?
1: 2005, I graduate college. I uh, ended up majoring in history. I did minors in what was then called women's studies. We don't call it that anymore, but uh, women's studies in theater. And then, yeah, I knew, I was like, okay, I wasn't allowed to do my undergraduate. I wanted, I'll do a graduate degree. Who wants to go to work? You know, I'll, I'll do a graduate degree. I'll go to England. So that, you know, summer's over, immediately go and start my master's in uh, medieval and Tudor studies in a place called the University of Kent in Canterbury, England.
0: Well, for those of you who like Middle English, you will be fully familiar with Canterbury. as a little guy named Chaucer who uh, wrote about what was going on there, but it was a while ago. Um, was that exciting to be in historic Canterbury?
1: It was. I mean, this, this still blows my mind to this day. I had class in canterbury cathedral every week so we'd go from the university excuse me from the university take the bus early in the morning because you know public transport there and go to and just walk in you know flash my back get to go in and then go to like the archives and they and literally just handling books that are five six hundred years old if not older Uh, i mean it was just that was like being in the harry potter library or something like that it was unreal just literally every Friday for half a day going to Canterbury Cathedral. And then from the university, it's up on a hill, you know, at the edge of Canterbury. And so you, you'd walk right through campus and there would just be the view of Canterbury, which is all just tiny little low houses. And then this massive cathedral and it would be in the snow and the rain. It was just unbelievable. Just Um, like a fairyland.
0: Were there any famous people buried in the cathedral?
1: Oh yeah, uh the Edward the Black Prince is in there. Um, which king? I want to say Henry the Third in his life. Maybe Henry II? one of the Henrys is there. Um, Thomas Becket was martyred there. He was uh, killed, and so he's there. That was kind of what made it a massive uh location was when he was killed by uh, Henry the Seconds men. Will no one rid me of this turbulent priest when he was killed there the and his remains were put there, the monks were like, ooh, money-making opportunity. <laughs> so
0: there was- there's... It's amazing, a roadside attraction. Mm-hmm. Uh For those of you who, I, I can't believe my listeners don't know this, but if you don't, there's two things you should, well, frankly, look at um to get more of a sense of this whole Beckett thing. Number one is uh, a movie, if I'm not mistaken, called Beckett, starring- um, Richard Burton and Peter O'Toole, which I think is a fantastic film, and then uh, another is the play. I think they made it into a movie, uh, if I'm not mistaken, called uh, "A Man for All Seasons," which talks. Isn't that also Beckett? No, think, I'm wrong. I, that's, I
1: think that's Thomas More.
0: Yeah. Oh, I. You know what? Don't listen to me because I don't know anything. Just go with the go with the uh, Beckett. That's enough. Although. The Thomas More situation is another one of those um, uh, where is what's your integrity worth uh, questions and also what are politics worth? That's a whole other conversation, isn't it? Um, I will also say that Peter O'Toole is one of the few people who gets to play a historic figure when they're very young and when they're very old. A lion, The Lion in Winter, which is probably in my top five movies of all time. Um, if you haven't seen that yet stop listening to this go watch it and then come back because that's far more important than me although it's not more important than our guest the author Kathy Benjamin who wrote it's your funeral Uh, and I'm eventually getting back to the book Um, why don't we actually do that now I want to say having I have a copy of the book thank you Quirk books and your fabulous PR team Um, because sometimes people just won't get me the book in time. Um, What's fantastic, one of the many things that's fantastic about this book is that, look, this is a topic which has been thrust in our faces for the last year and a half, meaning death. Um, I live in Brooklyn where we were really hit hard by the pandemic early. 55 people died in an old folks home merely blocks from where I live. I walked by more than one outdoor morgue was basically a refrigerated truck. Um, for people who are saying, oh, it wasn't that big a deal. I don't know where you live, it was a big deal here. But anyway, um, death is always with us. Uh, (laughs) Hate to be a downer, folks. And as an attorney, I've done more than a couple of estate plans. Um, It is the hardest thing. I have had no problem uh, dealing with people going to jail, talking about how I can't get them out and how they're gonna do even life imprisonment. I have dealt with that. Much harder to get people who are doing great, who are wealthy, who have kids, to sit and talk about death because they need to take care of their children or other loved ones, and they just won't do it. Um, This is part of that, Uh, meaning that your book talks about death in a different way, planning a funeral, which is not just taking care of your wishes, but taking care of the people you leave behind because having a plan takes care of them would you agree
1: 100 i mean so many thoughts um
0: yeah that's please it,
1: <laughs> the yeah covid it it was uh just weirdly i was contacted about writing this book in early march of 2020 and i think like the first couple email exchanges it was like okay you know we don't know what's going to happen with this but we want to go forward and you know it'll um You know, who knows? (laughs) So I was writing it during that first six months, six, seven months of like just uncertainty and oh, it's getting better. And then, oh, the winter, and it's gonna be the worst winter we've ever had. And uh, yeah, it was a very weird experience, even for me who who can talk and write about death, no problem, to be writing a funny book about death when I would wake up every morning and check the death
0: statistics for that day. Um, I just want to be clear. And you're the author. So I'm not saying you're wrong. to call it a funny book. But the truth is, within the humor, there's great information in this book. And I think the the humor is, to paraphrase Mary Poppins, the sugar that helps the medicine go down. Don't sue me, Disney. But would you say that's accurate? I mean, this is not a a laugh riot book, although there is great humor in this book, but the truth is there's great information. This is, I I almost feel like this is a very good informational book disguised as a coffee table slash bathroom book. And I don't, I mean, no disrespect. For those of you who are like me, you go to somebody's bathroom, sometimes they have magazines and fun books in there, right? And and this is like totally-
1: The books in the bathroom are the important books because that's what you're doing once you're reading. So, but (laughs) uh, yeah, no, completely. It's it's definitely it's one of those things where you know you kind of as you're editing it, you kind of I kind of go back and be like, okay, let's put a joke in here now. You know, like this feels like a point where it's gotten a little heavy, or we so let's put a joke in here just so people will keep reading and you know not get
0: too depressed. Um, I want to talk about how it takes care of people because you know when we're dead, we're gonna assume. We don't really care so much. Either we're really not here or we're somewhere better or whatever. But from my own experience, when my mother-in-law passed away during COVID, um, we did a Zoom service. Um, She was cremated and there was a long wait because in Brooklyn, there are not as many crematoria, if that's the right use of the word, as we needed during that and literally there was a line and that's just terrible, but it's the reality. So it took a month and a half to get her to be cremated, which is an inordinate amount of time. But in that process, so we couldn't, you know, do a real funeral as it were, but we did a zoom funeral. And I wish we had this book quite honestly, because there are some great, first of all, there's a great item. I'm just going to point out. You have the the people who must be invited, you know, there's a list, but there's also the people you really don't want there. And that's a great way of taking care of other people because, you know, I won't know if somebody I don't want in my funeral is going to be there, but your relatives don't need someone shit talking you, you know, or like, it's just, it's one of the many little gems in this book. Um so people I don't normally say go buy this book or do this thing but like I really love this book It's Your Funeral by kathy Benjamin Plan the celebration of a lifetime before it's too late it's available where all fine books are sold Um did you are there It really is such a how to with a lot of gems in it do, Are there any things that you're like oh these are the top 5 things I would tell anybody just little gems or even top three or
1: it's such a big
0: subject I I apologize
1: that's that's the thing and I didn't you know I I had already written a book about funerals I thought that I kind of knew about funerals but then when I was approaching it from a, a a planning perspective you realize how much there is and you were talking about caring about people I my new thing I like to say is that you know parents Uh, will say that they would take a bullet for their child. And I believe them that they would take a bullet for their child, but they will not sit down and discuss with their child what happens after they take the bullet. They're willing to die. They're not willing to talk about what happens when they die which is, you know, it's, it's kind of ridiculous, but it, yeah, I guess that it scares people. We've kind of got a, a world now where we hide death. And I think that was one of the shocks at the beginning, as you were saying, walking past those refrigerated trucks. We did not have refrigerated trucks around here, but we sure saw them on the news and people saying, we don't want these in our neighborhood. And because death was suddenly the, the, the pictures of the people being buried in a, a large grave on Heart Island that, you know, very early on in the pandemic, we were getting people all of a sudden uh, Western society, America has taken the ability to ignore death to almost a scientific pathological level. And then suddenly we couldn't anymore and people got very upset about it. But I think that people are realizing like you do, you have to it. We're all dying. We're all dying. I'm sorry. It's, it's the reality. And do you want to these people that you love, do you want them to be incredibly obsessed um, and suddenly have to pay a huge amount of money? That's another thing on the pandemic is the GoFundMe because there's more people dying. GoFundMe, GoFundMe. By, the, Go way, by yeah. the way,
0: it's a given. People are going to be upset. I mean, yeah. so yeah. it's just a question of how upset. You know, when yeah. I have had clients for estate planning and doing my own estate planning, there, there are so many little things that people just don't think about For If you have kids, and I don't, you know, if you pass away and your kids are underage, somebody has to take care of them, somebody has to take care of the funds or whatever. And even when people name them, let's say, in a will, like how long, like, if people don't get that will together right away, people need to have everybody know well these kids are going to ultimately go to uncle steve so let's just get them to uncle steve right away to minimize the amount of time and aggravation when the cops come and are like i don't know what to do with these kids like there there's a lot of nuts and bolts information that people who don't handle it don't know and it really causes trouble and i feel the same is true for the funeral situation because you know a lot of people don't put that information in a will And if they do, the will sometimes doesn't get looked at for days or weeks. Mm -hmm. And some people have uh, a culture like mine. So I I grew up Jewish. Um, I'm not practicing. But Jews generally bury the dead very quickly compared to other cultures. And you don't want someone sitting around. We also don't do open caskets. Some, the whole open casket thing is a whole other, I've had friends, this is, I had a friend who really didn't want an open casket. She died of a cancerous brain tumor, but her mom wanted it. And when I went to the service, there was an open casket Mm -hmm. and I bit my tongue because she wasn't a close friend and the mom was grieving. And it's like, do you do what you need to do to take care of the grieving or, you know, it's just like, it's, this is just one tiny worm in a giant can of worms, right? I mean, do, do you, do you talk to people about this on a private level other than just your book? Like, what do you do, by the way? I, I didn't ask this. What do you do for a living other than writing? Do you do anything? No, no. I'm a
1: write, full-time writer, editor. That's what, yeah. Awesome. So that's what I do. Yeah. Yeah. For 12 years now. So I'm very lucky, very lucky with my career. But um, yeah, I do. In fact, one of the things that I've been getting asked like on podcasts uh, is, you know, have you had an experience where this book would have been helpful? And I say, actually, the ironic thing is that in my family, no, because we all already have a version of this book. We talk about these things. We've talked about these things over dinner. Um, You know, my parents have a giant living will trust thing i know exactly where it is um uh, one of the things that i think is is relevant is my grandmother died uh my last grandparent my father's mother uh she was 94 this is before covid uh 94 lived a great life and she had thoughts on you know cuz we're all control freaks in my family so we all had thoughts already on what we want for our funerals and she has this um, like grave plot in Cincinnati Ohio and it's got you know great 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 grandparents and she wanted to be buried there well she died and we knew she was going to die in Austin Texas none of us have ever lived in Cincinnati none of us as far as I know have ever been to Cincinnati and so before she died my father was like look I'm not shipping your body to Cincinnati (laughs) like that's just that's just too much effort. I'm sorry. And so she, you know, they discussed it. And so she was cremated here and then her, we took her cremated remains up there and she was interred, but in the spot she wanted and everything. And those are the kind of things where if she had died and we learned then she wanted her body up there, then, you know, you're sad, she's dead. You're, you're in the middle of all this. And you're like, oh my gosh, do I do what she wanted? Which is ship her body halfway across the country or do I make it easier for myself because this is a very hard situation? So basically, you know, you don't want to add that to the fact that someone you love is dead. You don't want to add financial stress. You don't want to have to spend all your time in a funeral home picking out an urn or a coffin. You you don't want to be worrying about summing up their entire life in an obituary when you're like crying on the paper. Um, it just, yeah, when someone dies, it's going to suck but you can make it so much easier for the people you leave behind. It's not going to be your problem, but it's going to be the problem of the people you claim to love the most. So, you know, deal with it, sit down, come up, have those conversations. I always say with this book, like, I I want people to buy the book. I want people to fill out the book, but the book has limitations. It's a starting point. You know, you're going to have to talk to lawyers. You're going to need to talk to your family. You're going to have to do some of your own research, depending on what you want to do. Um, so, yeah, I just, you know, it's a starting point. Make sure you talk to people about
0: these things. I love I love that you said um, you want people to fill out the book. For people who don't know, the book is in many ways a workbook. Um, not only does it educate you on everything from what happens to your remains, um, how to take care of people at the funeral, music readings, uh, obituaries, things like that. But, but it has places for people to write in things and to gather their thoughts and actually even leave this for people. Like, what do they want to wear if they're going to be buried? Or I suppose, what do I want to wear to my cremation? I don't know what the rules are about that, but certainly for people who plan on having an open casket, um, you know, one of those things that's really a nightmare is when the parent when the kids have to go through A closet, and anytime there's more than one kid, you're just you're creating a fight. Mom loved this dress. No, no, this looks better. What about the jewelry? And I mean, it's just a whole you by going through this, you really prevent um some real big problems. There's always gonna be problems. And like I said, if you have siblings, and I do, it's still gonna be a nightmare. It's a question of reducing the nightmare. But I wanna we're believe it or not, we're running out of time. And there's one specific thing I wanted to get to, um, which is a digital legacy. We are living now in times, this is unprecedented. People have Facebook pages, Twitter feeds, um, and computers full of data and other stuff. What lawyers are dealing with now, and which you talk about also, is like, what do we do about that? I love that you have good material on this. Do you want to talk about that?
1: Yeah, that, you know, it ends up being, yeah, one of the most important things. And sure, it's something you can take a little bit longer on. But, uh, you know, we get told protect everything, you know, from all the hackers. But then eventually someone's going to need access to all this. And do they have the information they need? When I was reading these, you know, these articles about cops, going into funeral homes and trying to open iPhones with the corpse's thumb. You can't do that because it's an electrical charge. thing. Anyway, um, but like, this is the level we're at. Like, let's let's try the thumbprint of the corpse because we need to get into this phone and no one knows the password. And Apple's made it very clear. They're not going to open phones even for the FBI. So you're never going to get in. You're losing photos. You're losing text messages. You're losing voice messages. You're losing, you know, bank account details. People live off their phones. And then you just, you can't, it would be like in the old days, it'd be like if someone died in their house immediately burned down. You know, like that's essentially what it is. So you you know, you need to have like passwords for, you know, maybe credit card information, bank account information, things like that. you You don't want to just leave a note somewhere, but you can definitely put that information maybe in a safe deposit box. But you do have to think about it because that is one of the things that, it's just, I mean, when we're getting to the point where it's, you know, thumbs of corpses on phones, we need to come up with a better way.
0: <laughs> I do want to tell people that safe deposit box, I'm not, I'm not saying you're wrong, but that can be its own problem because accessing those after someone dies is difficult also. Um, I'd say there's good information in the book, also what you said Get a lawyer on this, because when you do get a good lawyer who's familiar with this, they will tell you to take some of this information and put it with the person you know is going to be managing some of this. So they already have this information at their disposal and have them keep it safe. Or, you know, if you have a spouse and you're planning on keeping that spouse, have them at the very least know what the password to your phone is. My wife knows the password to my phone and also to my computer. Because my computer, because I'm an attorney, I don't let anybody else use it, including her, because it's you're not supposed to, and it is managed with what's called a vault. You know, because it's an Apple product, which means if someone tries to get in and they can't, it it just shuts down everything, it locks it all up, and they need a giant code to get in there. Um, I know this is a little far afield, but you know, it's it's that. Very strange paradox of you want a particular person to access things, but you want to protect it from everybody else. It's almost like the ancient Egypt pyramids, where the right people are supposed to be able to get in, but if the bad people come in, the whole thing literally collapses on them and kills them um i do not want to end on that note so i'd rather ask you well um, do you have any projects coming up i mean i it, giving birth to a book like this is an extraordinary effort and i think this one's been incredibly successful so i don't want to rush you but because it's so good this is the problem authors of successful books face all the time what's next when it's when's it coming out do you have anything in the works right now
1: Uh, You know, I'm at the pitching stage on quite a few books. I'm talking to Quirk. I sent something over the weekend about a a pitch for a second nonfiction that we've been kind of working on together. Um, But my, you know, fingers crossed. I have a novel on submission right now with your Shannon And, and, you know, we're we're hoping on that one. So if anyone out there wants to buy a funny sci-fi novel that takes place in an alien version of Studio 54, please contact me.
0: And you're talking about Shannon Orso of Victress Literary, uh, with I'm very familiar, just if people want to know. I spoke with Shannon on this podcast. I don't remember when you could go to isthatreallylegal.com. I have all of the podcasts I've published there. Uh, There's no paywall. Anyone can access any of the bazillion episodes we've already done. Um, Is there anything, Kathy Benjamin, that we haven't talked about that you've wanted to talk about today?
1: I uh, know. I mean, we touched on a lot of things. I think, yeah, just as long as people understand it's important, but it's going to be, we're going to have fun. We're going to have as much fun as possible doing it. If you buy the book and you read it through, it's going to be okay. <laughs>
0: yeah. I, I do want to say again, this is a very serious subject that people really don't want to deal with. It's like going to the dentist for the most part, but it's so important and you feel so good when you've handled it because when your head hits the pillow every night, you're not thinking about this stuff. I do want to ask you, because you and I can see each other, although i won't be doing the video, I notice you have a really cool tattoo on what I think is your right. It might be your left wrist. Can you tell me about that? Yeah. yeah. Well,
1: this, and can you yeah, show it to I me? Because it looks like, oh, oh
0: it, I thought it might out. be a typewriter. What is it?
1: No, it's, um, it's, I got it when I was in England and it's, uh, it's, it's, uh, it's upside down there, but it's an illuminated letter I. Uh, I see it. Yeah, based on the book of Kells, and then it says in Libris Libertas, which means in, in books there is freedom. There you go.
0: Wow, that kind of sums you up in a way, I, Well, it? I will
1: say, I once got told by a drunk British man at a pub who asked about it that it was the most pretentious thing he'd ever heard.
0: Yeah, but that's not your husband, so he can, as the Brits yep. say, saw it off. Exactly. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, imagine getting a uh, Good information from a drunk. It doesn't happen. Sorry. Um, so, you and I have that in common too, because I, I also have a lot of ink. This is, you can't see it here, but it's a koi fish. And you said before, I do have a Jedi tattoo. Um, is there, do you have a favorite tattoo of yours?
1: Yeah. I mean, I'm supposed to say it's the one that's a K and an L for me and my sister. And she has the exact same tattoo in the exact same place. And we got it before I went to England. But I have uh, Henry the signature on my foot. And that, that's my favorite.
0: <laughs> so we're going to assume that he didn't actually sign it and that you found uh, his signature and got it replicated somehow. Is that yes. accurate?
1: Yes, that's accurate. Yeah. <laughs> what was the
0: document that you lifted the signature from? Uh,
1: well, I want to say it was something really boring, like making someone a lord or a knight or something. It was, that's good. Yeah, I'm glad it, it
0: wasn't a writ of execution. No. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um. Have you watched The Tudors or any of those things? And I I see your face. Okay, well, please. Because this happens to me. Look, I'm a lawyer who's done a lot of criminal law stuff. I've done trials. I've done appeals. I can't watch Law & Order episodes where a murder trial takes place in 20 minutes. And, you know, an opening and a closing are three minutes long. So I understand that. So is that kind of why you gave me a face that people didn't see? But why why don't I let you talk?
1: Uh, Well, no, as I said earlier, I have not watched Downton Abbey. I have I I made it through, I think, a season and a half of the Tudors in their Elizabethan clothing during Henry Day's period. Uh, And then I couldn't take it anymore. And then I, even though they're very pretty, they're very pretty on the Tudors, a lot prettier than they were in real life. Beautiful to watch. Um, And then I think I made it through 20 minutes of the first episode of The Crown. Yeah, because uh, I'm, still, I'm still obsessed with, with royalty and, and everything. And I think my husband made us turn it off because I was going, oh, and it wasn't even necessarily that it was inaccurate, but I would like add information. And oh, this is why this is.
0: <laughs> and he so, didn't want yeah. the color commentary.
1: No, I'm like, I, but I'm so sad. I'm never going to become a lawyer because I have to watch Law and Order. My dog is named Briscoe after Lenny Briscoe. Oh, Law and Order.
0: <laughs> well, who was absolutely a great character played by a great actor. What yeah. kind of dog is Briscoe?
1: He's a Chihuahua Terrier mix. I'm looking over here because he's, he's oh. sitting there, but he's all, he's, yeah. So he's like, he's basically, he looks like a Chihuahua, but he's bigger. So he's like 15 pounds, but. Wow. A yeah. 15 pound
0: Chihuahua sounds like a yeah. science experiment.
1: Looks like a Chihuahua, but he's bigger. We rescued him, so we don't know exactly what he is, but that's what he, that's what he looks like. But yeah, it was, my husband had never seen Law & Order because they didn't have it over there. And so when we came to America, he started binging it and he fell in love with Lenny Briscoe. And so when we got a dog, we came to
0: Briscoe. Has he seen Law & Order UK?
1: uh we did watch a few episodes they 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 take you know the exact same plot and move it over so it's
0: absolutely the same it's very um they basically lifted the show I will say uh again very handsome or pretty people at some different rules on the law I can tell you as an attorney they say some things that are like what and you're like oh it's England okay so uh, they have a different legal system than we do I missed out on wearing a white wig Never did it. Yeah, would love to do it sometime.
1: So funny, yeah. And then they have barristers versus solicitors, and it's yeah, it's it's very it's very weird. I like the uh, my favorite gossip column uh, refers to have whenever there's a story about you know something legal happening, they say they have their law degree from Dick Wolf University. I'm like, (laughs) yes, I I definitely do. Definitely,
0: Uh, uh, I know uh, all about
1: the law as long as it happened that way on Law and Order.
0: Yeah, I would caution people to, as I've said sometimes on Twitter, like. Uh, my law degree and over 30 years of experience is not the same as your Google search.
1: <laughs>
0: yeah. uh, so uh, I just want to thank you, Kathy Benjamin, author of It's Your Funeral, Plan the Celebration of a Lifetime Before It's Too Late from Work Books. Um, it's great to actually finally talk to you and meet you sort of in person. Thanks so much for being on Is That Really Legal with Eric Rubin. I really appreciated your time. Thank
1: you. Thank you for having me. This is great.
0: Wasn't she awesome? That's Kathy Benjamin. The book is It's Your Funeral. Plan the Celebration of a Lifetime Before It's Too Late. If you like these kind of interviews, subscribe to this podcast. Um, you can do it through any of a zillion places, whether it's Audible, iHeart, Radio, I don't know. We're on everything. Apple, you name it, we're there. Um, also, please leave a review. We'd love that. It helps people find the podcast. Um, If you have questions, concerns, want to make recommendations, go to isthatreallylegal.com. Leave me a message. I'd love to hear from you. Please take care of yourselves. Take care of those around you. Wear a mask. Get the vaccine. Keep doing what you need to do. um, And I'm going to keep doing this. Thank you so much for being a listener. And I look forward to meeting with you in person someday, one day. But if not... Uh, I look forward to being on your podcast download again next week. Thanks. Bye-bye.